Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I am a certified financial planner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money better. This week's show, we look at what happened in the month of August with the markets. We also look at whether active or passive investing outperformed in the stock market and decline and rebound that we've had this year. In the legislative update, we look at how the SEC is now allowing investors to have access to more complicated kinds of investment items. In Plan Your Prosperity, because it's almost fall, we're going to look at how your money is a lot like a game of football. And then finally, in the Ask Peggy section, we're going to look at a sort of complicated sounding term called Net Unrealized Appreciation, or NUA, but it's not really that hard, and I'm going to explain to you why you care. So let's get started with the bulls and bears market and economic update. This is market data as of the close of August 28th. That's a Friday. So I thought I'd go ahead and look at the last month's data. We're ending one day short of what actually happened in August, but it's close enough, close enough to give us a good idea as to how the markets did. And truthfully, the markets did great. The Dow Jones Industrial Average went up a little less than 8.5%. The S&P 500 went up almost 7.25%. The NASDAQ went up 8.84%. Gold dropped a little over a percent. West Texas Intermediate Crude went up 6.18%. The 10-year Treasury yield went up 12.8% while the aggregate bond index fund went down 1.21%. And then finally, the dollar index closed down 1.12%. So what does all of this mean? And the answer, honestly, when you look at August, is probably not very much. Typically in August, the entire Wall Street community goes on vacation. Now, I understand that this year people aren't going as much as they usually do. However, I still would anticipate people taking that last-minute break, even if it was a staycation, before school gets started. Usually, when the markets go down in August, they go down on relatively thin volume, and they go up on relatively thin volume. It means there's not a lot of trading going on. Now, why does that matter? It matters because the less trading that's happening, the more any news impacts the market. So what you wind up with is a market that's reacting a lot to the news at hand. And so the fact that the markets had a very good August, I mean, a remarkably good month, no question about it. It'll be interesting to watch now that it's September and everybody's back to work, either literally or figuratively, what do the markets do now that everybody's paying attention? 
It will also be interesting to see the role that politics plays in this because it's common wisdom that nobody pays attention to the presidential election until after Labor Day. They kind of wake up for the two conventions that we just finished, and then after Labor Day, everybody starts getting serious about politics. So I will be interested in watching the market action in September to see if the great August can have some follow through. Now, related to how markets perform, you know, there's a huge divide in investing. Half of the people think that you're better off indexing and half of the people think you need an active fund manager. So they want an actively managed mutual fund where someone's going in and choosing the stocks that comprise the fund. That's what an actively managed fund means is somebody's going in there and they're selecting what's in the investment. They usually have a constraint. So usually they're managing a large cap US fund or they're managing a developing market international fund. So it's not like you can go out with most mutual funds and buy absolutely anything. You usually have a category that you're staying inside, but an active manager makes choices inside of that. An indexer, on the other hand, if they wanted a large cap U.S. fund, would probably choose the S&P 500 as an index, and then they'd buy a fund that just tracks that. So there's no active manager making the decisions about what stocks are in an S&P 500 fund. It's the funds that comprise, or the stocks that comprise the S&P 500. Now, the argument has historically been, oh, well, when the markets are going up, you don't really need the active management because everything's going up. But when the markets go down, that's when the active management pays for itself. And so Morningstar just put out a study looking at how the markets reacted with the downturn that happened and then the subsequent rally. And it ends up that in the downturn, the active managers, for the most part, didn't do any worse than the market, but they didn't do any better either. And so with that huge decline, it was a very good opportunity to see whether or not the actively managed mutual funds outperformed. And for the most part, they didn't. In fact, when you look at U.S. stocks, only 48% of the U.S. stock funds that were actively managed beat the index. Now, the results were a little bit better if you were in the international market. 60% of the international managers beat their index. But on the bond side, the managers did much worse. Only 40% of them beat the index. So if you kind of weight the portfolio the way most people would hold it, you'd own quite a bit of U.S. stock, quite a bit of bond, and probably less international. When you weigh it all out, the active management did not outperform on average over what the index funds did either on the drop or on the rebound. So I'm not saying you shouldn't buy actively managed funds, okay? That's not the job of this, um, this radio show. I'm never going to come in and tell you what you should and shouldn't buy. What I will tell you to do all day long is track the performance and compare the performance of the fund manager to the index. 
and then look to see the difference in the cost between the actively managed fund and the index fund and make sure that you're getting the benefit that you think you are because there's some great fund active managers and some that don't do as well. It's very, very hard to be an active mutual fund manager and beat the index in both the up and the down markets. And you need to look at your fund manager in both environments. You know, okay, maybe they got conservative when things started doing more poorly. Did they get back in the market when they needed to? So if they saved you going down, did they also keep that when the market started going back up? It's very easy to find a manager that's good in an up market, and there's managers that are good in a down market. 2020 is your opportunity to test your manager in both environments, and it probably makes sense to do that just so you understand your investments a little bit better. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And this week, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, expanded the individuals who qualify as accredited investors. Now, an accredited investor has the ability to purchase more sophisticated types of investments than people who aren't deemed accredited investors. And up until now, the definition had primarily been about net worth. And this was a little problematic because it was assuming that people with money automatically understood the stock market. And I know a lot of people who have made their money in other ways, not in the market. And so when they actually make investment decisions, they don't know any more about the stock market than someone who is more of a middle-income, middle-class, upper-middle-class person. So they've added a number of new categories so that you can be an accredited investor. And to sum them all up without getting too far into the weeds, because there's nothing worse than when I start getting overly technical. I know that, and I'm working on it. If you have good knowledge of the markets and how they work, and you demonstrate that knowledge through either the jobs that you hold or the licenses that you have, you are much more likely to be allowed to be an accredited investor. So for example, someone who is a registered investment advisor, even if they're not a high net worth person, is assumed to understand the markets well enough to be allowed to be an accredited investor. Now, that raises a couple of red flags that I haven't seen in the initial analysis that's going on. One of the things that you should always talk to a person who is investing your money for you is how do they invest their money? There are rules in place to keep someone from making an investment for themselves and then buying it for you to make um, their money go up. You know, so if they own a share of stock and then they, uh, they purchase that stock for a bunch of clients, theoretically, it could make the price of their shares go up. Now, it would take a lot of money. Nevertheless, it's illegal. It's called front running. It's when I get ahead of you and I'm benefiting by the decisions 
based off of what I put you in as an investor. So if you have a license, if you have a job that shows that you have more experience, it's more likely that you can be an accredited investor. There's also that net worth requirement that I talked about before. But here's where it gets really problematic. If you have a net worth of $1 million, and that excludes your primary residence, and you either have made $200,000 each year for the last two years if you're single, or $300,000 if you're married, you're also automatically an accredited investor because of the money that you have. And when I was reading some of the um, financial protection groups, really their issue wasn't so much broadening the definition of who could be considered accredited. It's this non-inflation adjusted number that's been in place since the rule went into effect. Today, $200,000 a year salary is a very good job. I'm not minimizing it, but it's not high net worth. A married couple making $300,000 a year jointly are not high net worth. And if you're getting a little older, having a million dollars in assets, if you've actively participated in your company's 401k plan since you were young, you could very easily have investments of a million. This is what worries people so much. This is what worries me so much. So that the older person who may not be really financially sophisticated, they just worked really hard and they lived below their means and they saved their money. So they did everything right. Now qualifies for these more exotic investments. Just because you qualify for accredited investor style holdings does not mean you want to do it, okay? You've got to be so careful. A lot of these accredited investor holdings are very, very exotic, very high risk. My personal opinion is that a lot of times the advisors who are selling them don't see beyond the commission they're going to make from the sale. I think a lot of people who sell these don't understand the products in the first place. Some people do, and for some people, they may be absolutely appropriate. I'm, I'm not going to, again, on the radio say that this is the wrong thing for you to do. I just want you to be really careful, and I want you to be sure that you understand the investment, and I want you to make sure that your advisor, the person who's recommending that you buy it, understand the investment. So one of the biggest issues that I see with accredited investments is liquidity. If you need to get the money out of that investment, how hard is it to do it? And sometimes there's, it can be remarkably tricky. Sometimes you can only redeem every quarter and the dates that you can redeem on vary a little bit quarter to quarter. So it's not like you can put on your calendar hey, on June 10th, I'm going to be able to redeem this. You could write it if you needed the money and say, okay, I'll do it then. Those dates vary. The windows can be short. Sometimes you can't get the money out of part of the investment at all, especially if you start getting into the hedge fund world. With hedge funds, sometimes there isn't liquidity. 
and you can cash your hedge fund in when the fund manager says you can and not before. I'm really boring. I'm really simple. I'm really basic. I don't like complicated investments. That's just me. You may like them just fine. I like things that are easy to explain. I want to know what they are. I want to know what they hold. I want to know how to buy it. I want to know how to sell it. I want to know how much money the person who sold it to me is going to get for that deal from anybody, from me, from the home office. How much money do they make for putting me in this? And I want to know that what I own is helping me meet my financial goals. That's the whole reason we're in the stock market. Yes, it can be fun. Yes, this sounds glamorous. But at the end of the day, most people really just want to be able to retire when they want to retire with as much money as they're hoping to have. Sometimes exotic investments work. Sometimes they don't. I want you to be very careful. I want you to understand this. And just because maybe now you qualify, you need to decide if it matters at all to what your goals are. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And I thought we'd have a little fun today with the University of Oklahoma back and with college football, we hope just around the corner. I wanted to talk to you today about how creating a financial plan is like a game of football. You know, in football, you have your offense, you have your defense, and you have your special teams. In financial planning, you have exactly the same thing. So to play financial offense, the first thing you have to do is be proactive with your money and create a budget. Now, I know budgets are just horrible words and nobody likes to hear them, but really, the budget isn't as bad as you think it is. Remember, at the end of the day, you make the budget, and if you don't like the budget, you can change it. So the way you create a budget that works is you start out writing down everything you spend, whether you think it's important or not. So if you go through a drive-in or you eat out or you go to a big box store and you buy half a dozen things that weren't on your list, you write down what you spend. And then at the end of the month, you look at how it classifies. Once you know what you're spending, you can start to create a budget around that. Now, you may find that you're spending more than you want to. And if that's the case, then you look at those expenses that you have that probably can't be changed, like your rent or your car payment. And instead, you look at those expenses that you have a little bit more control over, like eating out, discretionary. Maybe your cell phone bill could be a little cheaper. You can also look at other utilities and see if there's a way you could save a little money. Remember that saving small amounts of money over multiple categories will add up. Now that you know what you spend, you can create a budget that works. The reason people hate their budgets is they don't do that first. They just decide that this is how much they're going to spend on groceries and this is how much they're going to spend on rent and on their phone bill and they don't compare it to what they're actually spending. 
The reason they can't hold their budget is they were never holding that budget in the first place. So start with your cash flow, create your budget. Next, participate in your company's 401k or retirement plan, especially if they match. If you're very conservative, you don't have to invest that money in something that's incredibly risky. You're funding the account. I find that often, especially when people are nervous about their money, they get confused about the difference between funding it and the investment portfolio you create. It's two completely different events. So fund it first and decide how you want to invest it after that. Then review the portfolio holdings that you have in your company retirement plan and anything else where you have money. So what do you own? Why do you own it? Does your portfolio actually mask your, match your risk tolerance? Because if it doesn't, you need to adjust something. Does your asset allocation have you on track to be able to retire when you want to? And again, if that doesn't match, you need to address it. The quicker you find it, the easier it is to fix. So that's your offensive plan. But you know, games are really won on defense. So to make sure that you're safe, you want to have an emergency fund. I talked about emergency funds last week and how I'm really more convinced than ever that it's important to have a good emergency fund that sometimes really unexpected things go wrong and you need to have that money laid back to try to help you survive it. Save it over time, but try to have a good nest egg in the bank, not invested someplace safe. Your next defensive move is to make sure you have enough insurance. That's not only having life insurance, but maybe disability insurance. Review your homeowner's policy and your car insurance. Maybe you need long-term care insurance or you need to make a plan as to how you will pay for your end-of-life events. So insurance is not a bad thing. I know that sometimes it gets a bit of a bum rap from people who think about financial planning. They think, oh, well, it's just somebody selling insurance. That's absolutely not what financial planning is. But I've seen people make financially disastrous decisions because they didn't have enough insurance. Your insurance need often ties to your cash flow, so make sure that you've paid attention to everything and you have adequate coverage. Then your last defensive move is having a good estate plan in place. Your estate plan includes your powers of attorney for your finances and your health decisions. Maybe an advanced directive, often called a living will, that talks about those decisions you want at the very end of your life, and then documents that help you dispose of your assets the way you want, either through a will or a trust. You'll need to get an attorney to help you with these documents, but that last defensive move will make your family's life so much easier when something happens to you. It's the last gift you can give. But outside of offense and defense, so many times the game comes down to the toe of the kicker. Your special teams are critical. Your special financial team includes your certified financial planner practitioner, 
your CPA, and your attorney. And these three people should know each other. So they're acting in conjunction with each other and can help you create a financial plan that incorporates everything where everyone's on the same page and your financial goals are either met or you're taking the steps to try to meet them the best that you can. So I don't know if we're really playing football this autumn or not. If we are boomer sooner, go OU, keep everybody safe, keep everybody socially distanced. And even if we don't play ball, there's always next season. But this is the season for you to take a chance to look at your financial plan and make sure your offense, your defense, and your special teams are in place. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. Remember, if you want to submit a question to the show, go to askpeggy.com, that's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and submit your question. Then I'll be in contact with you, get some more details, make sure I have everything to create an educational answer for people who are listening. Today's question is Peggy. I was told that I might want to take net unrealized appreciation on my 401k plan, and I don't know what that means. Well, don't feel bad. Many people don't know what net unrealized appreciation, or NUA, means, but it can be a great strategy in the right circumstances. So if you have a 401k plan that has company stock in it, the IRS allows you to take a lump sum distribution of that stock in one year and move it to an after-tax account. Why would you want to do that? Because they only make you pay income tax, ordinary income tax, on the basis of the stock or the price of the stock when it entered your portfolio. So you roll it out of your 401k into an after-tax account and the tax liability is on the basis. So if you were issued company stock that has a very low basis, that has a lot of appreciation, it's a way of paying less income tax. When you go to sell the stock, you pay long-term capital gains on the difference between the basis price and the price you sell it at. Long-term capital gains is 15%. So if you're in a high income tax bracket, you get away with only paying income tax on the basis and capital gains on the rest of it. You can only do this while it's still in the company plan. So don't roll it to an IRA and then try to do it because the IRS won't let you. Be careful. Taking your company's stock as a lump sum could trigger a very large tax liability that year, even if you're only paying income tax on the basis. So before you go to do it, make sure what you're doing to the tax bracket of the year you choose to do this. Additionally, it will work best when the basis is low, 
make sure that the current price of the stock is higher than the basis because otherwise it won't work at all. Look at the difference between your normal tax bracket and your capital gains rate of 15%. That's actually your tax savings and offset that against the lump sum that you'll owe if you take it all in one year. Now this can get a little complicated. You want to talk to your certified financial planner practitioner, you want to talk to your CPA, and you want to talk to the HR department of your company and make sure that you have all the details right and that this really is the right strategy for you to use. But if it is the right strategy, for some people it saves them a lot of money and that would be the goal of doing this. I can't believe how fast the show has gone again. I will see you next week where we'll have new information and new topics to talk about. Bye. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.